story of global kinship. Postmodern missionary dives into what it means to be a missionary pushing against the heritage of colonialism. Join Reverend Katie Meek as she explores life and faith as ceremony. Hello, friends and neighbors. Um, thanks for joining me for another podcast. I wanted to record a quick intro for this conversation. This is part two of um, my vice chancellor, um, the Reverend Professor George K. Rue, who is former ambassador um, to the United States, as well as a legit philosopher um, and a very, very smart man. So um, last time we got into more, more philosophy than anything else. This conversation is going to be about politics. It's about Sierra Leone. It's about the university. It's about more of his um, history and uh, family life and all of that. So I hope you enjoy it. You are the son of the first Sierra Leonean, was it United Methodist Bishop? Yes. Uh, it was the United Methodist Church at yes. that time. So the first Sierra Leonean United Methodist Bishop. Before that, all of the bishops were Anglo. Well, they were Americans. They were American. Yes. I mean, we had always been, uh, this mission field was uh, uh, opened and uh, supported by American missionaries. Okay. Yeah, so uh, we were not part of the English tradition at all. We had always been within the uh, American Methodist Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting when you go into the bishop's office here in Sierra Leone now. There's on on. I, I don't think it was done on purpose. I think it was done for space. But um, in the reception, there's on one side of the wall a bunch of like six white bishops. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and right. then on the other side of the wall, <laughs> there's pictures of I guess the three or four well, yeah, yeah, uh, right. Sierra Leonean bishops. Well, yes. With your father up there as the first. It's a chronological ordering. Mm-hmm. Of, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, but it, it does, it, it feels like yeah. quite the difference. Yeah, well, uh, before we uh, became autonomous, uh, we were uh, over time being prepared. As I said, the church is uh, been over 150 to we're going to close to 200 years. So yes. You can begin to see that we've had a very long and uh, uh, profitable relationship with the United Methodist Church in the United States. Yeah, I mean, we've... uh, When I came here, it was amazing to me how established the church is here. It's very established and has deep, deep roots in Sierra Leone. Yeah, extremely, yes. How long after independence did this happen? Independence was 1961. Yes. Well, it was not very long after independence. I think... uh, uh, in fact, I was not in the country when my father became bishop. My father served for almost 20 years as wow. a superintendent. Okay. We had two superintendents within the conference itself. Uh, my father was one of them, and uh, you know, at the end of um, when it came to the point where we were now making, going to make a transition, to having an episcopy established mm-hmm. in Sierra Leone, it, it was a natural transition. So my dad, who was then the most senior pastor, then at that point, was simply voted in as the first, uh, you know, indigenous uh-huh. bishop. Indigenous. Uh, yes, yes. So can uh, um, I'm just learning. I think I'm putting this together. Does that mean that the um, 
American bishops were were they based here or were no, they no, based no, in the no, states? They only came uh, for a short period of time, uh, three years, especially on an annual basis. Okay. For the annual conference, maybe okay. two months, three months, and then they went back. That is insanity. Yeah. That the, that you did not have a bishop. Well, in, they they had the local administration. Right. So essentially, and, uh, within the lo- most of the local administrators were missionaries also. Oh. So, yeah. So you, you had a certain area, for instance, in the in the what we call missionary affairs office, <laughs> and oh. the yeah, we had then a lot of missionaries in in the all the areas health. Uh, education, mm-hmm. you know, and in administration. Right. And most of those missionaries were American. They were American. Yeah. Yes, they were okay. in fact American when we're not anonymous. And that was this then uh, cooperative relationship with the local church. Okay. Yeah. So they did help us to establish church planting, mm-hmm. you know, and and uh, church administration. Right. And, uh, and so on and so forth. Hmm. You know, yes. So it was in that regard that you would have at the beginning, uh, well, when we normally had the annual conference, you would have a visit from the United States of okay. a bishop that was assigned uh-huh. to this conference wow. to come and preside over the wow. uh, year. But then by then, the superintendents, you know, and the circuit pastors and leaders mm-hmm. were responsible for doing all the other district conferences, district work. Okay. That was not the business of the bishop then. And those His were business s- was merely to ensure that everything was going on right. okay and stuff like that. And, and, and that the conference. administrative office, in terms of a church treasurer, where we are now also missionary that have been assigned here okay. to carry out those functions. Interesting. Yeah, eventually. Those functions were then, of course, turned over to the local church, the local annual conference. So at the time before independence and before the switch, how much Sierra Leonean leadership was there? How much of a voice did the Sierra Leoneans have in the creation of their church? Not too much, but um, they had, because as I said again, uh, not too much in the sense that they really did not make the decisions or the plans as to where the bishop and his office had laid that out and right. their job was more or less to carry out right the, the, you know carry out the uh, so they were kind of foot soldiers plans and to implement them yes yeah okay yeah and they were part maybe George at the end of every uh, at the beginning of any annual conference they would have to give reports of their progress mm-hmm. in these different areas you see but um Apart from the, we easily became the leading Protestant denomination here because of the perseverance of uh, what of the missionary community. I mean, that's probably one of the reasons why I became a missionary because they had uh, put in so much work here. Right. Much of the really load then was on the missionaries. So, uh, uh, yeah, it seems to me like you really respect the missionary endeavor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even early on, you were talking about some of the missionaries who lost their lives to come and, and um, serve here. Yes, indeed, yes. Yeah, you know, I, I was uh, very much touched by their uh, testimonies, mm-hmm. you know, in the sense of you know, their willingness to give their lives for what they believed in. Right. Uh, I think those were very eloquent testimonies of of faith Mm. in uh, Jesus Christ. And uh, 
what we now enjoy as a matter of fact is really as a result of those personal sacrifices people who if they really had not done that some of us would really not be where we are now mm. and we seem to be enjoying some of these opportunities and beautiful things because the people taught us uh, not only about as you said christian sacrifice but also about humility mm. you know about commitment mm. you know and about the unconditional love of uh, lord jesus christ yes this is really beautiful yes it is I think in the States, and certainly me too, I, I think uh, what we often do is, is critique that. We have a, we have a strong critique of um, this, and I think in many ways it's kind of a colonialist idea that you come in and you take over and, you, and you're in charge and you take power and that kind of thing. Would you say also that, uh, how do I ask this question? Um, would you say also that, that there, uh, would you also have a critique of that? Um, well, I would think at a certain point in our development, it was necessary. Okay. Because to begin with, we didn't really have a literate public and a written language. And so they had virtually to teach us everything, mm. including how to read and write. So clearly, they would definitely have to play that role, whether or not they wanted. Mm -hmm. And I don't really even see why they needed to be criticized for doing that. Mm. You know, so that moment really called for just that. Mm. Yes. And I would think they did it uh, consciously, uh, conscientiously, you know, with a clear understanding that what they were doing was not doing it for their own self-gratification. But uh, they were actually doing it as a result of their calling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it was in service and to the glory of God, yes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if people are behaving and, and relating and trying to understand your culture so that they could transmit a valuable message of uh, Christian love and Christian duty and our service to all my... Uh, I really don't see how they could be criticized for hmm. that day. Now, perhaps it's a little different. And even now, I fail to see how anyone can be criticized for that. You see, um, ideas would survive on the basis of uh, the effectiveness of those ideas. Hmm. And uh, it's no longer a question of somebody coming in and dictating terms and and uh, trying to subjugate others, you know, right. to carry out their biddings. I mean, that was a different era, and that's a colonial era, and we ought not to confuse the, the, the colonial period and its attempt to dehumanize and, uh, uh, you know, externally control the wheel. Mm -hmm. uh, of their colonies, whilst at the same time, you know, uh, intimating them of their inferiority. Mm -hmm. We ought not to confuse this with people who uh, bring a liberating ministry right. and of salvation and love God. In fact, it was as a result of this that they lost their lives because most of the problems were perpetrated by the colonial people, the right. exploitative. And when people started to react against what they thought, was an unfair imposition upon mm -hmm. them, including here. 
Individual people would they had probably initially accepted that friends who they believed had come as friends to trade and because that was the pretext. Right. It was those treaties were treaties of friendship. And then suddenly they came now and turned it around mm-hmm. and they were treaties of surrender. Right. You know, you were saying that you are now you now have to pay taxes to us. We can now take what we want to take. Right. So when the people were riled up and they were very angry at this attempt to impose upon them an external rule that they had not recognized, uh, they, they, they pushed back. Mm-hmm. But when they did, they could not really distinguish you know, their, their oppressors from their friends. Yeah. They, they all looked alike. Right. <laughs> they were all white. Yeah. And, and they were so confused that they could not even say, well, this group of people, perhaps, we must peer there because, you know, they came here to enlighten us. No, it's like they're all the same. Right. You see, so whilst the, those who had perpetrated this dastardly mm-hmm. action were able to protect themselves and to withdraw behind the firing lines. Mm-hmm. The, our missionaries who stayed with the people were the ones that became victims. Okay. You know, of the very selfish acts of the colonialists. So um, uh, it's like being caught in the, in the firing line when, you know, yes. And in the case of quite a few of them, I mean, they told you their stories. These were people who were willing to give their lives. Mm-hmm. These are people who could have escaped if they wanted to. Right. Yeah. I I um I think that's a very generous perspective. Um I the and I I think that the critique comes from essentially exactly what you just said. The ways in which the missionary movement um unknowingly aided colonialism. Unintentionally aided colonialism. Um, because in some ways they came at the same time and um, and it, it got a little muddled and the question of who um, who are who are the ones here who are taking advantage of us and who are the ones here who are um, doing good things for us kind of became it almost became a similar message right yes, that's it. Um, uh, even though as I said I mean there was nothing in what they did that could have tied them up but the fact that they were more or less of the same Race, right, and had and culture, and culture, yeah. But there were tensions even between the missionaries and the colonials. They didn't like each other. Sure. Oh, yeah. The missionaries never really right. uh, tolerated or even uh, what we normally. Uh, so they they served as a as a critical voice toward the colonials as well. They were a critical voice. They rescued us. They uh-huh. provided uh, consolation, right? And uh, sympathized with our plight, and offered uh, whatever literal consolation they could. You know, uh, when uh, we needed medical attention, mm. or we needed basic education. Oh, you know, and, and so on and so forth. Mm. But the colonialists tolerated them because they preached a religion of peace. Yeah. They preached a religion of non-aggression. And to that end, the colonialists did not see what they were doing mm-hmm. as opposed to their interests. Mm-hmm. Now, if the people believed that this was not their home, their home was in heaven, if the people believed that God would handle and fight 
their own battles, you know, then it was not something that they were doing that would be inconsistent. If anything, it worked to their advantage because at the end of the day, it was for these people to internalize, you know, these so-called negative values Mm -hmm. so that it'd be easy for them to be controlled. Right. And subjugated, you see. So it was really in that sense that they collaborated with them, even though they did not work. Uh, but they tolerated I I wouldn't say collaboration because there was no sort of, they tolerated them. You're talking about the... The, the colonialists. Okay. The colonial administration uh, tolerated them. Col- tolerated... The missionaries. The missionaries, okay. Because they didn't see them really as adversaries in that regard. They right. see them as aiding. Right. Them in that regard. Right. Because what they were saying, even though they were preaching religion, but it was a religion of peace. It was a religion of non-aggression. Right. And so, so in some ways, that religion assisted the col- colonialists to come in and... Precisely. Yeah. It, it, it made the individuals what? It was easy for them to be, you know, because to be subjugated. Precisely, because don't fight. Be, right, exactly. You're mm-hmm. you're supposed to turn uh, the other cheek and precisely all yeah. of these things. Yeah, and have God fight your battles. Uh, right, exactly. But <laughs> uh, this life is not your home because when you really go to heaven, that's your home. So right, what's the point? So you right. know, and s- yeah, so that that kind of made their work easy because. Their entire exercise was aimed at dehumanizing, right? You know, their subjects, you know, and anything that would aid in that direction, uh, they would uh, encourage. Right. <laughs> oh, I said, but you know, uh, beyond that, they felt, uh, you know, uh, 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 they didn't know what they were doing. They had their head, <laughs> you know, in the wrong place, and that was their problem. Right. For as long as what they were doing did not you know, conflict with their mission, but in effect aided what they were doing. Actually, right. that was fine. But when it came to a hill, when they could have actually even assisted mm-hmm. to evacuate them because they perpetuated this day, they led them to their devices, they led them to their own, you see. These people had to uh, walk sometimes miles on foot because then the there were no motor- oh yeah, there yeah. were no motorable roads then. Okay. I'm talking about uh, the 19th century. I'm talking about the 1880s, 1850s. Right. 18, I mean, this uh, the whole tax was was it 18, uh, 1898. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, there were no motorable roads. Or there were no no such thing as motor mo- uh, cars then right. in that right. part of the world. Yeah. So so essentially, what you're saying is, when things got hard, the um, the powers that were the political powers from from the West essentially abandoned the missionaries. Oh, yeah. Yeah. To their own device, yeah, yes, they abandoned them. So yeah, so it's a, I, it feels like a lot more complicated um, than than what w- we like to we like to put a box around things. Mm-hmm. By we, I mean I think American Christians, um, but uh, but at the same time. One of the reasons that I even have this podcast and and am doing this is because, number one, it is complicated, but also I don't ever in any way, and I'm trying to figure out how to not do it, I don't ever in any way want to aid the powers that be um, in order to oppress and subjugate. And, and I think the missionaries before did that without really realizing that they were doing it. And not always, but sometimes. But I wouldn't even say it was aiding because really at the end of the day, that sacrifice that they made made all the difference. Mm. 
It made all the difference. They did not stop sending missionaries. Right. They sent more and even more volunteers to come. Right. They did not abandon uh, the effort to Christianize and to provide and uh, teach the gospel of salvation mm. in a context where people were subjected to indignities, you know, were robbed of their self-respect, you know, and, and, and devalued. Yeah. Their cultures were devalued. They gave them a sense of respect. Right. They gave them a sense of hope. Yeah. Rather than the, you know the climate of hopelessness yeah. that has been created by by an overpowering force. So okay. You see, so I, I I saw them. I would see this as darkness and light. Okay. You see, I mean, that's why as I said earlier. Now, it's so very interesting that it will take credit for everything. Mm-hmm. Like the colonial administration, uh, a hundred years after much of what had happened, they could come and say, well, you know, we did actually really benefit them. Mm-hmm. It was a mission of civilization. We helped to civilize them. We gave them a communal space. You see, they are taking credit for things that they did not do. Mm-hmm. You see, they are taking credit for a foundation that had been laid by. That is why I started off by telling you that when they decided, that they could no longer maintain or hold on to their colonies um, and that we had to be prepared for. They were going to hand over our independence, whether or not we liked it, because that's the way I look at it. Right. The only, if we had not had schools and administrations uh, that had been established, by, by the church. Who are church yes. By the who church. The church came in here. with education. This is it. It wasn't the secular government. No, it was it the was church not. that came into education. The church. Yeah. If these institutions had not been in existence, it would have been a disaster, monumental disaster. Mm-hmm. You know, they wouldn't have had even competent people at that point in time to take on the task. So what you're saying is, had had it not been for the church and the missionary endeavor, exactly. things would have been even worse because of colonialism. Yes, it would have been worse, it would have been worse because of colonialism. Now it's been turned around to a civilized mission, and they had done the most they could, and yet here these people who are incapable and unable to administer themselves. That's far from the facts. Yeah. The facts speaks for themselves. The alternative framework, and within the liberal framework, you see, it's very easy to promote such an, uh, such lies, you know, and uh, uh, and because uh, they control the media, uh, control the means of communication as well as, to an extent, they have also co- colonized uh, knowledge. Mm. Yeah, it's been a difficult period for emerging nations to survive in this kind of, even now, post climate. People do not quite see it, but we, uh, what we call is, uh, we are still, they say, we, they were to call, it's still a situation of blaming the victims mm-hmm. for their victimhood. Right. And that's we still where we are. Yeah. We are still being blamed, uh, you know, for much of what is going on, when in essence, uh, most of the things that they had done, the institutions they had established, the centuries of of manipulating the minds and set and stuff like that, 
I mean, you, you don't take this. These things don't go away mm -hmm. in a generation. The structures that were in, were in fact built during those periods are still there. Right. And these structures are being reinforced. Mm -hmm. They reinforce people's uh, colonial mindsets. Right. Uh, to the extent that even those who were not born during that period are subject to the same mindset, uh, yeah, mindset because of these same existing structures. And what is the mindset? The same colonial mindset. If you had initially viewed your sense as yourself as the other, you right. accepted and internalized your inferiority. Right. So there's you have been subjected to yeah. a situation where you've been robbed even of a right to think on your own. Yeah. Your decisions and views and values have been dictated by others. Right. And to the extent that you still view yourself in a paternalistic relationship mm -hmm. after independence with the same very people who subjugated you. Mm -hmm. It's a father and child relationship. Right. Whatever you do, they still have to oversee your actions and say it is good or it is bad. Right. You have never really seen and taking uh, inventory of what had gone on, where you are, where you and why you are, where you still are, and why you need to think outside of the box. Right. You're still doing very much the same things they would have wanted you to do when you were being subjugated by them. Mm -hmm. You know. So even after their 50 years of independence, what did they mean even by independence? Mm -hmm. All of these terms have been coined, you know, consistent with precisely their own value system, with precisely what they wanted you to think of yourself. Right. But you, the, 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 there's still, uh, there's, there has not been any rupture between the post -col the colonial and the post-colonial period. Mm -hmm. That's been continuous. It's been continuous because you can only have that rupture, you know, not with the so-called uh, superficial uh, independence, which each visa has been given, but to the extent that when we talk in terms of social justice, we are talking in terms of how you uh, uh, dismantle Mm. the institutional mm. and social structures mm -hmm. would have been there during colonialism which helped to keep you people down. And these structures are still very much in place. Yeah. yeah. And then until we could see reason and a way of even trying to get rid of these structures, we cannot uh, go beyond where we are even after 100 years, mm. you see. And, and, and that is why when we talk about corruption, we fail to see it we, it is simply a moral issue. Yeah. But it is not really for analytical purposes. It goes beyond that. It goes beyond a situation where you need to ask why it is so very different in a case such as a political morality, where the individuals who are so-called, so quote-unquote, are not the same as the uh, usual in the Western world, a corrupt individual who works within the system. There are two different things. Mm. When you operate in a Western liberal democratic system where individuals are not subject to the same, had not been subject to the same way, it's different. In the sense that you, 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 the, the institutions within which you operate have values they embody certain values right. which you who operate within them clearly understand, you know, 
and are committed to carrying out what is expected of you. Right. We talked about transparency, we talked about accountability because you deliver. And if you don't, you can be held accountable. Right. So you pay a price for you're not carrying out what you have. If, so let me say, if you use your office for personal gain, Right. Uh, that would be obviously viewed as a, you as know, a violation, uh, as of, a violation the, of rule. The and therefore, values. yeah, yes. And so, therefore, you are subject to punishment. Yes. Yes. In, a, in an ideal America. In a, well, That's in true. an ideal American situation. Well, I mean, any ideal liberal democratic. Right. Let me sure. put it there. I'm not using yeah, you're not your administration itself. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But in, in, in an ideal liberal democratic setting. But uh, when you're taking a patrimonial. Uh, clientelist kind of society such as Australian where uh, patronage politics has so somehow find a way of it's now actually fused with democratic institutions. So it's, it's patronage politics in in relation to holding hands with yeah, democratic has, Well there's fusion ideals. now between it. Okay. There's a coupling okay. of uh, patronage structures. What do you mean by patronage structures? Well patronage is where you have uh, patron client leakages. Okay. Leakages, okay. patron client leakages, where individuals uh, serve, I mean, subvert the system, and whereby they now use the system to serve their own personal interests, right, rather than the public interest. Right. So the patron benefits a specific set of clients, precisely, um, with the power that they have, precisely. So rather than doing what they are supposed to do. They, those people who elected them, they were supposed to be accountable to them, okay. to serve them, right, and, and then, to everybody, not yes. just not just a certain well, set of people, but to all to everyone in the country. That is what the the liberal democratic systems, institutions are supposed to do. Right, they are supposed to allow individuals who operate within that system to do their duty, and their duty was what to deliver. Right, for you know, the best thing for the whole. Yes, and that the individuals for whom they work would what hold them accountable. Yeah, and they would, their exercise would also have to be transparent. Right. But what now happens in our situation is that these people who now occupy these so-called democratic institutions, uh -huh. you know, they've have, been elected, right? They so, are very well elected, right? But what they have succeeded in doing is to subvert those institutions uh -huh. and have um, encoded a different value system, okay, which are in fact designed to serve personal and individual interests, uh, right? Rather than. Uh, carrying out and satisfying the interests of those who put them in office, you see. And this interest would be clearly to every patron has a client, every client has, so you have patron-client leakages all over the place. Right. And you, the individuals who are, in fact, put into those places are not there to carry out, uh, uh, you know, a function to satisfy the public. No, 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 no. Their job is for them to report and... Uh, and satisfy their clients right. below them. If so, they don't, their clients would get rid of them. So really, at the end of the day, when they steal, or they, let me use this word, let me not use uh, in, a, in a social science term, uh, rather than the normative term steal, right. when they uh, divert mm -hmm. resources that were actually meant for public use, for personal use, when they divert such resources, they are actually operating according to the existing norm. Uh -huh. And when you are behaving according to the existing norm of our society, if you attempt to punish this fellow because he or she has not complied to the so-called 
abstract norms that are in existence, uh-huh. you know, you expect him to somehow uh, be apologetic, mm. to be punished for not doing the right thing. He's been paid very well for his job. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when you maybe even serve a jail time, not only loss of the job and benefits, and you promote somebody else to that office, you expect them to have learned their lessons and not to do the same thing. Right. But the difference here between the political thief and the ordinary thief in a Western type of system is that when you move that political thief and replace him, <laughs> with another one, his uh, successor does about the same thing. Right. And that goes on ad infinitum. So essentially accountability doesn't mean anything. No, it wouldn't. Because there's just Polish another person is the waiting. wrong thing as a matter of fact to be applied in that case. Okay. What would, what, okay, wait, uh, I want to know what would be the right thing to be applied. But first, but <laughs> first, but first, <laughs> I want to clarify something. So a patron-client's relationship, what, uh, can you give an example of that? Would, would that be, okay, so I'm, I'm thinking that might be a family, like a, so, so you benefit, so if, you if, have if, power, you benefit the rest of your family, but then it. also you have power, you benefit your ethnic group. That's so it. essentially like your, there's You're some correct. like tribal relationships. That's right. Nepotism. Nepotism would be where your family is involved. Ethnicity would be where those who only belong to your group right. or from your region right. would be placed in those positions. And not because they are competent and not even because they are the right people to be there, but only because they were your supporters. Right. You okay. see. And in doing that, you're also excluding those who do not who are not part of that group. Mm-hmm. So in essence, you this now would retreat into a civil society. Mm-hmm. They are not even part of a loyal opposition. They have become part of a civil society, and when civil society becomes an opposition group right. to the, those in the, in the public realm, sphere, you see. And you cannot resolve this by, by uh, using the prescription of, uh, of uh, you know, like what would obtain in liberal democratic institutions right. with their court of laws right. and individuals being answerable for what they do. Why? Because the norms there are different. Yeah. The norms in that kind of society are norms we take into account that uh, you really cannot take people's property that do not belong to you. The norms talk in terms of service. Down here. here, those norms. I'm not, I, and, and I'm careful not to moralize it. That's why I use the word norms rather than rules or, or laws. Right. I use okay. norms as values that you, the people have, in fact, within the society. Right. Accepted mm-hmm. as a way of operating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that does not even mean that they are right. Mm-hmm. Because when you do critique these norms rationally, then you find that the amount of damage they have done to our society, such like Sierra Leone, they have damaged lives. Right. They have made it impossible for us to have progress. Right. Then, uh, they so keep people essence, poor. People are poor because because yeah, of yes. these norms. Yes. Yeah. And these are not simply norms that one group, as a matter of fact, it's an, it's an norms that the entire society, including the electorate. Right. Because right. The electorates that put these people into office do so, I mean, because they are part of all the ethnic solidarity. Right. They they they, right. they ignore uh, ideas. Ideas mean very little to them. You're talking about about progress, what developments you bring up. It makes little sense to them. Right. All they lose is the politics of ideas 
cannot really penetrate. Which is, you know, when you are when you vote on the basis of ethnic solidarity, right? The political ideas is edited out of that kind of context. Which is kind of the reason um, I I recently put something out about tribe tribalism. I I know ethnic solid ethnicity is a better word, um, but but there. Well, it is tribalism, really. So, ethnicity is a sanitized term, really. But you know, I would rather even use naked tribalism. That's really what it is. Um, you know, on, on the political sphere in Sierra Leone, there's there's two main parties. One one party um, is connected to one ethnic group or tribe, um, and then other and then the large one of the largest ones, and then another party is connected to another ethnic group or tribe. And some of that is also regional. Um, but after, particularly this um, uh, this most recent uh, election, there was a lot of conflict between the tribes because it's because in some ways or during the election because in some ways what happens is well if if my person gets elected the one who's connected to my tribe then that means that my tribe is going to benefit and they'll critique I've heard people critique and get angry with the other side for doing that very thing, but then when it can't, comes down to it, they just want to get their guy elected because because then they'll they'll get that even though they think it's wrong, they still think that I mean uh, talking about like the electorate participating in that, they they think it's wrong when the other guy does it, but when your guy does it, oh no, it's just, oh, that's the right thing. We've had this coming. We've been waiting a long time. Yeah, so blah, it really blah, blah. is an immoral context. Yeah. You can't even begin to moralize on that issue. Yeah. So it's really probably you use uh, harsh terms or you know, when you make those statements, formal regarded as statements of approval or disapproval of what is going on, right. rather than even use moral terms. Because quite frankly, you are also you will be doing the same thing in the expert. Yeah. You uh, see. Uh -huh. Yes. Okay. So uh, the last government that was in there, uh, you know, over the last 50 years. Um, this country has been polarized along uh, ethno-regional lines, which right. makes it very dangerous. Right. You see, because we do have two dominant ethnic groups. And to that end, if it is polarized along ethno-regional lines, these dominant ethnic groups, uh, you know, are being supported by groups in the orbit, in the serial area. And if elections, with any type of elections, even the next week of elections, would always be a recipe for violence. It will, mm -hmm. you know, it's a trigger violence. Right. And, oh, uh, it's yeah, it's triggering. Oh yeah, it and, would. It, and every all of that stuff that's underneath the surface just kind of comes it's back all up. underneath the surface because yeah. that's there. The structures are there. I see it in it's, my classroom. <laughs> yes, it's along ethno-regional lines. Yeah. And and at some point, if it is not arrested, and uh, we do not find a way to address these kinds of problems constitutionally and otherwise. You see, we can even come to a situation where it gets off of, out of hand and leads to a civil war. Yeah. Because what happens is that we have already transformed the public sphere, the political sphere, into a cockpit. Mm. And these groups are now really basically fighting for the scarce resources. Right. That are there, even though they are talk of using rules. Yeah, you know, the rules. <laughs> yeah, but they are not really there. It's a naked fight here between groups for those scarce resources yeah. and when they capture these resources they are designed they, they are meant really only for what 
they are a group. Right. The other group is excluded. So we are really taking in terms of two nations. Right. Two something within the same nation. And it's untenable. It is untenable, you see. And, and uh, there's liberal democracy doesn't really have the resources to address such questions. They don't. So, and the emphasis on punishment as a way of resolving or introducing what I call institutional overloading uh, by bringing more institutions to try to supervise or, uh, over, to, or to be oversight institutions to ensure that these things are done or to teach people how to behave properly within the... Oh, these institutions have already been polluted. Right. So you essentially, see? it's it's you're just adding in another group of people who are who are patron clients. Precisely. Motivated. Guys, you would have to decode right. these institutions and re-encode them. Yeah. But to do this, you would have to somehow delink patronage politics from the labor institutions that have been so-called. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, messed up. Right. The, 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 the value and the, the, the problem with comparative politics is that they think these so called institutions that are embodied, these kind of values that are embodied in liberal institutions, were kind of fixed. But that is not the case. Right. You, they, they can't be moved, they can't be removed, they can't be changed, especially when you superimpose them mm-hmm. on, uh, on a culture. That, uh, uh, that is uh, uh, that is different from that is fundamentally different from the very beginning you can't change people's culture and mindset in 150 years yeah. I mean yeah. you can you can embed you can, like uh, you know it's almost like a cancer you can put a cancer in there and change their mindset That's in right. some ways but the but there's so much under the surface that is cultural that, is that you don't you, you, from the outside you cannot even see no so if you're going to change it has to be from bottom up yeah not from up to yeah, bottom. Okay. You say you can't change it by bringing more and more institutions. Mm-hmm. If you're going to democratize the culture, then do so. And that has not been done. Yeah. What we're trying to do, we're imposing these institutions, superimposing them, and asking individuals to learn how they have to learn how these institutions work and then behave accordingly. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is well. I reserve my comments. I don't Yeah. So, so okay. Let's go back full circle back to the university because I, I, I'm coming to learn. You know, when I first, when I first heard what I was going to be doing here, I thought to myself, um, I want to help people get out of poverty. That's what I want to do. I want to be in the midst of the poor, giving them, you know. But, but what I've come to learn, and even in the conversations with other expats who are doing work, like literal work helping people get out of poverty and also Sierra Leoneans here, that this it's actually the spiritual resources that people need as much as anything else, and maybe more than anything else. Because in the end, it's going to be the character development and the spiritual resources mm-hmm. that helps pe- that, that help because we can't come in and say, here, here, here's all the ways you should fix this. Yes. Um, it's 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 really about empowering and, and emboldening and giving con- and, and helping people find their own conviction mm. that things ought to change. That's right. You're, you're absolutely correct. If you can provide spiritual resources, you can, uh, then you would also have affected a change in the mindset. Right. If people lack confidence in themselves, if they lack what we call a poverty of imagination, yeah. they cannot really sit down and say, if you have that kind of money, you could think outside of a box. Right. You see. But if all you do is to play the blame game based on, as I said, the paternal relationship where 
what has been said and written about you is what you accept about yourself. It's still mm-hmm. that fact. Right. You see, you know, we are far from finding a solution to this problem, and we are far from from uh, even attempting to do so. Why? Because we have. We are operating, let me put it this way, we are operating in a global political context where uh, Eurocentric, uh, you know, views still foreshadow mm-hmm. much of what our politics today. Right. You know, it was the Eurocentric view that uh, that prompted the whole, whole thing of... Uh, uh, Western expansionism mm. uh, through trade and colonization, and then uh, and this view of what uh, the, their own experiences were superior, they, what the knowledge were superior, and how you have to use their knowledge before you can move around and do these things. Pe- people parrot what they think, yeah, that, right. uh, and perhaps the most people, the people who are maybe most pathetic are even those who are Western trained. Mm. They are the most pathetic ones, you know. I feel because they 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 have embodied yes. and internalized yes, the same kind of message that says, "Well, exactly. they are better than me, yes. and I kind of need them in order to be guided or whatever, whatever." And having accepted those, those those assumptions, they draw yeah. conclusions based on the same very assumptions the West has accepted. Right. So they arrive at those conclusions and reconcile themselves to it. Yeah. You know, it's not liberating. Yeah, it's not liberating at all, yeah. and that's where I find postmodernism so liberating. Right. You know, but this is a really meta level where people would need to, even my uh, our colleagues in the social sciences, mm-hmm. could be liberated from this kind of all uh, because it is an ideological. Mm-hmm. They've become ideological, mm-hmm. really. You know, like liberal democracy is an ideology, and that's it's, I, I, it's intolerance to any attempt to modify or to to find an alternative way of approaching is right. intolerance to that is what has made yeah. even progress as of now impossible yeah that's the problem with time is we 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 like to institutionalize things yeah. that were once very freeing and now you box it or you box it in and then you know every couple hundred years or 500 years or whatever this is true for the church as well mm-hmm. uh, it's 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 um you have to bust out of it and i think in that way um I mean, I, I think that's, that for me, the idea that there is freedom in Christ, and for freedom, Christ has set you free, um, is the the most radical and beautiful um, part of our faith. Yes. Because you we mean, don't have to be bound. This is it. We don't have to be bound by the institutions that we've, we've even created for ourselves that may have been good at one time but aren't anymore. We it. don't have to be bound by old mindsets. We that's don't right. have to be bound by sin. Yes, right. If you are free, as the Bible says, when Christ frees you, you are free indeed. Yes. You know, and you really do not owe it to anybody. Your freedom and whatever you do is owed to only one and only one source. Right. God, whose will is what you carry out in this world. I mean, uh, if we give uh, uh, an interpretation of this what we now have, if we provide an interpretation along uh, religious lines, we will very much come to the same end, you see, because the, 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 the worst thing you can possibly do is to, uh, through ideology, because really what communism was all about, mm-hmm. is, uh, is to mess up, uh, mess with the mindsets of people, mm-hmm. and where people accept things without having to 
scrutinize them. Right. Yeah. Well, it becomes difficult. And in our own case, virtually everything we do, we have to, uh, and quite often, expect this to come from outside. We have no indigenous think tanks. Uh. We do not carry out indigenous research of our own. Right. Now you want to ask, how do we arrive at cabinet conclusions? How do we make policies? Mm-hmm. On what basis do we initiate these policies? Where do we have our facts for to initiate these policies when they are not supported and backed by what? By research. Right. Carried out by our own people. Right. Right. Because essentially what you're doing is you're yes. borrowing ideas that opinion. are embedded in a culture that is so fundamentally different, different than yours that they probably, I mean, even though the ideas might be good, they may not work here. They may not work here. Yeah. yeah. They may very well work down there. Right. You see, for instance, that's a market society. Yeah. And yeah, this is a pre-market society. Ah, okay. Yes. It's a pre-market society. The economy still is a subsistence economy. Yeah. You see? Yeah. So these are all factors that would work against how effective, well, you know, these ideas will work here. Uh-huh. You know, if okay, we people will talk around here about okay, we're bringing investors and bringing investment. Or oh, where's the labor force? Where's the skill labor force? Mm-hmm. You know, we are the people who demand these things. Right. I mean, these are all issues people around here would not even address. So, if you're going to talk in terms of wealth creation, uh. yeah, then it's a vision that you have to elaborate. Yeah. You know, and articulate and- adequately enough to address all of these questions that I have raised, so that if somebody is going to come and then they are not fools they see what is there and what is not there Mm. and then they simply go away yeah and i think that uh, so to bring it around full circle because i'm just looking at the time um but to to, i think what what that's going to take is um from the bottom up investing in people's self-confidence investing that they have something to say and something to offer to the world and to and specifically to their own people yes. investing in their character Precisely. that when they have the power they will serve that is a starting point and investing in their work ethic that Precisely. they want to work for the benefit of of the world that is the starting point so if you don't start from that point you can as well forget it right so, so again, back to That's back to spiritual point. resources. Yeah, that People it's about have confidence. To have ownership of these things. Yeah, and that is what it entails. Exactly right. what it is right. to have ownership of something. Right. That you do not have these things imposed upon right. you. Not just that you have to understand for yourself right. why this thing would be of use to you. Yeah. You know how you could utilize this to improve your life rather than right. somebody else telling you all of this and you still cannot figure out right. for yourself right. what it's going to do for you. Right. So what? You have a road. So what? You have a light. So what? Yeah, but how do you put all of this together right. to promote what? A viable trade and growth, you see. Yeah. So you have to invest in exactly first and foremost in these things. When you provide education, it's not simply being having skills, but you will also have to address those people who have lost confidence in themselves, who do mm-hmm. not have a sense of hope, that you can be as best, as can do as good at work as anybody in Europe. Yes. You can be the best possible you can. Right. Yeah. Well, and not yeah. only that you can, but that that the world and your community needs you to do it. Yeah, yes. Not somebody else. Yeah, not somebody else. N- not, yes. not a white person from, from you know, Europe or from the United States. That is it. They need you to do it to, to because you. of your embedded Precisely. culture and your embedded values and your embedded giftedness. Precisely. And so the idea that, that I mean, it's that not we, just that, that, that you can. Call, that's what we call 
creating an ethical social relationship okay. in place of what is now there. What we have is the colonial type of social relations where individuals are exploited. Mm-hmm. Individuals are not quite themselves. Where these different groups uh, see themselves, you know, as threatened. Okay. In terms of their identities. In that. So essentially, they are just there fighting each other, as I said, like a cockpit. For mm-hmm. what they can get, right. you know, there is no sense of unity. Yeah. There is no sense of nationhood, you know. Right. There's there's no sense of responsibility and duty. So when you say, as you have rightly said, that individuals will have to have a sense of duty, mm. doing something because people need them to do it. Right. Well, you have to get to that point where he begins to see it not as an opportunity for him to aggrandize himself and stay, right. but as a duty, right. carrying out a responsibility which only he can be carried out. And those right. people who put him there right. look and upon it, him, and he himself has a, a conscience and an idea, as I said, then it becomes a norm. Yeah. That becomes a values. Because the social ostracism that we follow for him not just simply failing to do it, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just accepting, for instance, a penalty as we normally talk about. Right. But the fact that he may have failed in that duty. Right. You see? So he grows up in a climate where the sense of morality now comes into play, the awareness of duty, mm-hmm. you see. Yeah. And, and right also the, the freedom that actually comes with, with actually d- doing something um, in service of other people, but yeah. also that fits your calling oh, for yes. the world. Yes. Um, you know, I don't know who said it, but somebody said your calling is where your greatest passion meets the world's greatest need. I yeah. think I think there is a certain amount of duty around that, but also that's where your life is. But that's what, the, well, that's in fact where your life is. Yeah. Yeah. And we have ignored all of those aspects. Right. So we have we have to develop a sense of community. Yeah. Which is absent. Which is interesting because it's yeah. such a relational yeah. it's such a relational culture. It is. But it is, this but it's what absent, you, yeah. what I think you mean by a sense of community is also that we that that we can build each other up and we uh, but owe what something I mean, to inter, each other. In, in terms of our interrelationships and their working. Yeah. yeah. Because even within the same community where I talk in terms of solidarity, uh-huh. there is no sense of really community. Mm. These people are being used by the educated ones right. to promote their interests. Right. That's why they, they remain poor. Those who are at the top and who are educated mm-hmm. get all of these things for themselves yeah. and for their families and for their friends. Yeah. But, you know, you do not have this thing, uh, how you call, uh, 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 what is the, you know, going down, filtering through to the common man. Like no. a trickle-down. Trickle-down yeah. effect, yes. That's even whatever. Mm-hmm. You don't have fil- fil- filtering down to the lower person on the It doesn't right. happen. Yeah. You see, they remain poor. They remain wretchedly poor, you see. But when it comes to time of voting, they vote only on solidarity. They right. still lack the health right. They still lack the roads. They still lack all the basic amenities that you want to make life even meaningful, you know. Simply why? Because right. they, they have defined themselves in opposition to all others. Right. You know, right. I have to vote for this group because those people don't like us. Right. The other people, if I don't, they would grab everything else and stuff like that. Well, well at the same time, when you introduce an idea and you come and tell them, look, we could do this or that, they still don't pay any attention to right. you. They, yeah. At the end of the day, it is a psychological, right. the, you know, the force of the air that, that, that pushes them. Right. But those at the top, the educated ones, who are in fact the ones who are straight this, you know, grab our stuff mm-hmm. and push it because it is to their advantage. Right. 
Right. So talking about voting against your own self-interest. It is. That's what happens. And voting against your own self-interest. Yeah. yeah. And and you know and we this year there was a third party that really tried to make a run. And I think probably in the past there have been kind of third parties that say, okay, here's an alternative to that. But it seems to me like people talking about a crisis or a poverty of imagination cannot imagine a system that's different. Um, so anyway, before we get into another thing, <laughs> I realized I, my plan was to talk for an hour and it's been almost two. Oh and, and you know what? We haven't even gotten to postmodernism. <laughs> oh my God, I think we've already covered it in many we've ways. Covered it, we've covered yeah. it in, in, in an indirect way. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I just think um, this is the funnest. It, it's, it's very easy to come into your office, uh, Professor Keru, and, and talk for several hours about these very important things. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, um, because time is running out for me, so I'm wondering if you might be willing to have another conversation with me. Quite frankly, yes, I'm open to you know okay, having great. another conversation on this issue. Because I, I think that you, I mean, you are a teacher at heart, um, and and have something um, a perspective to offer that's I think just really really important. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, for the compliment. Yes. And also, I want to hear about your family, because I didn't ask that question. You adore your children, and they adore you. Yeah, and um, and to hear the story around um, how, uh, the way that you've invested in them and all of that, and also your missionary endeavors, I think a little bit more on the missionary side, too. So anyway, um, I'll just say thank you very much for giving me two hours of your time. You're a very important man. Um, so to to um, I feel it feels an honor that you would have um, offered me that space. So thank uh-huh. you. Well, thank you, Nikki. Alrighty. Well, friends. Next week is going to be a conversation with my friend Kristen Bacher about her life in the slums. So come back next week, and I hope you have a great week. And God bless you, friends.